Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the conversation on the Young Turks. You know, uh, since the pandemic has started in Los Angeles, California, it is hard to have a conversation with anyone here without talking about how great the air quality is in, in Los Angeles because no one is driving. Well, uh, not only is that a theme here in Los Angeles, it's going to be a theme on the screen. Uh, we're joined today by Fisher Stevens, with whom I have shared a, an audience to uh, actor relationship uh, dating back to high school, and Jean-Eric Verne, who, who goes by Jeff, uh, who is in joining us from Paris. Uh, they are involved in a project that's amazing that Fisher has directed called And We Go Green. Jean-Eric Verne, Jeff is a, is a race car driver, and they are uh, highlighting the effects of electric cars through Formula One. And uh, Fisher, I'll start with you. Let's talk about the idea. How did this project get on your radar? Well, I, I have to say I'm not a race car uh, fan. I, at least I wasn't for this project. And I was having lunch in my office one day when Leonardo DiCaprio called me. He had just finished making a film called Before the Flood. And he said, come meet me in Brooklyn for lunch uh, at the racetrack. And I said, dude, there's no racetrack in Brooklyn. And he goes, what do you mean? Yeah, there's a racetrack, Formula E, it's in Red Hook. Now I live about seven minutes on my Vespa from Red Hook. And I had no idea that there was a race going on there. And it was the day before the race, Leo was having uh, lunch and a look at the place. He invites me down, introduces me to Alejandro Agag, who created Formula E. Alejandro is this kind of big, bigger than life character. I think we capture him pretty well in this film. And uh, he's like, Fischer, this is uh, Formula E. He shows me around. Leo's like, we should make a documentary about this, man. It's another environmental doc through sports. I wasn't really quite sure. I, you know, like racing, ah. Uh, more environmental films. It's like, oh my God, I know the planet is burning, but so next thing I, I called my buddy, Malcolm Venville in London, who knows racing. And I, and, uh, I said, will you meet, will you meet me in Valencia, Spain? They want to fly me to meet all these drivers and see if there's a film to be made of Formula E. And Malcolm flew to Valencia. And, uh, I'm not saying this to bullshit because he's not saying this because he's right there, but <clears throat> when Malcolm and I met Jeb, Jean-Eric Varen and uh, Andre Lauder, who were teammates in a team called Tachita, we kind of knew between them and Alejandro, we, could, we had a film because we knew we had these crazy characters. So that was how it started. And, and so, Jeff, when you meet film directors, you're a race car driver, right? Uh, something that no one has ever said about me. When you uh, when you uh, meet these uh, filmmakers and you want to highlight, obviously, what you're doing, um, what's your first inclination here? I and mean, this is something that you do for a living. But is it also a mission? Is it also part of is that a part of what your job is? Well, I remember the first time I met Fisher. I was not in Valencia. I was actually in, uh, in Hong Kong. So I think he met a couple of drivers in Valencia, and then he met myself in uh, uh, in Hong Kong for the for the first race. 
And um, I think I remember, if I remember well, Alejandro told him that, you know, if he wants to follow a few drivers, I was out of, the, of that list originally. Um, and uh, then I had an interview with Fisher. And I think, I, I don't know why Fisher chose me. Uh, you know, I'm French. I don't have a very good uh, English accent. Um, but I guess I was speaking out the truth of what I was feeling and what I wanted to do and what I was doing. Um, and Alejandro said, yeah, but, you know, he's in a small team. He hasn't won any championships, so I don't think that's your guy, you know. Uh, but we proved that Alejandro wrong. And uh, it was, uh, you know, um, a fantastic ride together with Fisher and, and Malcolm. I met uh, two great guys. We became friends and uh, we spent so much time during the year. And, you know, to reply your question, we're not used to that. I never saw one day I would be acting in a, in a documentary um, or that I would be sharing the red carpet in Cannes with Leonardo DiCaprio. So it was quite an, an amazing experience. I'm sure it was. The film is called And We Go Green. Uh, Jeb, I want to ask you, you know, when did you decide to go green? I, I imagine like with any profession, and I can't speak to yours, that you make decisions about how you want to pursue it. As a journalist, you go into print or you go into electronic. Was there something that sort of forced your hand into this or was this a, a choice you made to actually start racing electric cars? It was, um, it, yeah, it was a choice, but I didn't have much choice. Back then I was in Formula One, I was here 2014. And um, I was run, running out of contract. Uh, the team I was racing into also did not offer me uh, another year of contract. So I was kind of left on, uh, on the sidewalk and uh, I needed to find a drive. So my manager um, told me that I should consider Formula E. That's not something I was considering uh, at the beginning. But then I said, OK, I need to race. Um, let's give it a shot. And um, I went in the first race, 2000, end of 2014, in uh, Punta del Este, Uruguay. And that was my first race, and uh, it went pretty well. And from the very first race, I thought this championship could be something, you know, really huge, really big, with a lot of car manufacturers uh, joining and uh, and being a world championship. Fisher, tell me a little about the timing of "And We Go Green." Why now? I mean, obviously, we're, we're at an, a point of evolution with an electric car. We're at a time where climate is talked about more than it had been in the past. Even though you have an administration that pulled us out of the Paris uh, Climate Accords, tell us why the timing of this makes it a perfect film for the moment. Well, we tried to avoid being preachy about climate change in this film. And I think there's a version of this film that Jeb hasn't seen that's on the cutting room floor where we spend quite a bit of time talking about climate change and climate issues. But we realized like we made that film and it, it, we can make more of a statement if we show these guys, these drivers, get to know these drivers, make it more about the, the characters, and then ultimately show how cool these cars are so that everybody wants to drive an electric car. There's a scene in the movie where Jeb is uh, taking this gondola up across Santiago and he looks out, he goes, you see out there, you can't see those mountains because of the pollution. He says, I guarantee you, if everyone drives electric cars, you can see those mountains. Well, from my friend in Santiago told me, you can see those mountains now because of COVID-19. Yeah, so, it's an incredible thing. It, that goes to what I was saying here about Los Angeles. I mean, you can see Los Angeles again. I'd rather probably see the mountains of Chile than 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 L.A. Um, uh, but Jeb, 
talk to that a little bit. The, the, the notion that this industry, the automobile industry, is going toward electric anyway. Uh, are you sort of ahead of a curve? Are there people that in the rest of the, the Formula One world, one that you were associated so closely with for so long, that look at you now with envy that you're ahead of a curve that, that they aren't literally? Um, I wouldn't judge really, uh, you know, if they look at me with envy, but when I left F1 quite clearly, I was the the little yellow dog, you know, that uh, didn't belong there. Um, and, um, after a few years in Formula E, I guess I made, I made myself a name. And not only through the result that I have, but also through everything we're doing. Um, the documentary on the Green is, is the perfect example. So you race on one hand, you try and win, you try and be competitive. Uh, but on the other hand, you also raise awareness about climate change um, and about the new technologies that are coming. And the new technologies is not the future anymore, it's the present. It's electric cars. And that's what we see in that documentary. And, and tell, tell me quickly about the guy thing about it. What's the difference for you driving a Formula E car from a Formula One car? Uh, just the feel for it and, and, and what, what the difference to a layperson would be? Uh, it's it's quite a, a lot of difference. It's very difficult. It's like if you want to compare uh, an apple on a pear. Um, I would say that the first and biggest difference is in the mentality of the championship. We're only racing in city centers. Formula One is not uh, beside Monaco and Singapore. Um, we race street, uh, street circuits, so therefore we race in Hong Kong, in Paris, Rome, New York, uh, Mexico, Santiago, and many other countries. Um, because we're here to promote as well electric, electric mobility. So take Paris as an example. The mayor of Paris wants to get rid of all the cars, but she's been the one pushing to have uh, Formula E because it promotes electric, uh, electric vehicles. So it's also a very strong um, message that is being sent to all the people living in the cities that we can race electric cars so you can buy an electric car and you know, go, to, go to work with your car. And maybe in the near future, when the cities are going to be only electric, we're going to be able to see, uh, for example, your city in Los Angeles, uh, where you see no more pollution. Uh, I've seen in London uh, and Paris, where you can see actually all the buildings from coming, you know, you, when you come from the motorway, like 10, 15 kilometers away before you just could see a, a, a dark cloud. And now you see very clear the, the whole city and you can see the Eiffel Tower from my parents' place, which is one hour away from Paris by car. Uh, an amazing, an amazing thing. Uh, I, the question is, so how, when they're only electric vehicles, how's Fisher going to get his Vespa to go to Red Hook in seven minutes? That's the uh, real mystery. <laughs> how do I charge it? The, yeah, that, the problem we have in Brooklyn right now, and I just, my, my house is solar, which is great, but I have no place to plug in vehicles because uh, we don't have garages. So that's the, that's the challenge in Brooklyn. Understood. A little bit. Uh, Fisher, Fisher, tell me about go Green. I, I want to know two things. First of all, how can people see it, A, and when can they? And B, what you hoped to accomplish by getting involved in the project? Uh, go Green just premiered on Hulu this week. So it's streaming on Hulu in America. Um, it was on Canal Plus in France. I want people to drive electric cars. I want people to understand that electric cars are cool. And I want people to get very into Formula E as a sport because it's the least smallest carbon footprint sport on the planet. And I think the drivers are fantastic characters and the competition is the best competition of any motorsport in the world. So um, obviously I've become a huge fan.
Yeah, it seems that way. I, I'm uh, I'm breaking a rule here with the the the, the team, but I, I have to ask you, Fisher. It, I'd be remiss for not asking. Was Elon Musk a character in in the making of this uh, at all? No, I've uh, interviewed Elon Musk in Before the Flood and in Racing Extinction. He did not want to participate in uh, Formula E. He said because he wanted to spend all of his time and all of his resources in furthering Tesla. And they were so far behind in orders and they had to put all their energy, manpower and finances into that. So, no, no American companies except Jay Penske, who is an American who has a team called Dragon, um, is, is the only American involved at this point in Formula E. And Michael Andretti, who co-partnered with BMW on a team. Otherwise, there, you know, I was really one of the only Americans other than Jay and Michael around that place. Pretty cool. Fisher Stevens, uh, Jean-Eric Verde. Uh, Jeff, uh, now now I know him well enough to call him Jeff. Uh, I, I really great luck with this film. I'm really eager to see it, and uh, and good luck on the racetrack, Jeff. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. Thank you. Uh, Welcome to the conversation on the Young Turks. You know, one of the great things about movies is when they uh, illuminate a part of history that you don't know too much about. And that is the case uh, with our conversation today. And we welcome in uh, to the show, Catherine Boyd-Badstone and Melina Bovadia, who uh, are part of a film called For Rosa. And For Rosa uh, speaks of the Madrigal Ten, a, a group that I didn't know very much about. We welcome both of you in. Catherine, what was it that brought you to uh, this project? You're the writer-director of this film. What was it that attracted you to it? Yeah, so I initially saw the documentary No Mas Bebes, which is um, a documentary interview with um, six of the, the mothers who were sterilized without their consent while giving birth at the USC East LA County Hospital in the 1970s. Um, and I also had not heard about about this story and um, I'm, I'm from Long Beach which is about 16 miles away from the hospital and I I just I really wanted to be able to help honor the women and like the strength that it took to stand up in court and so um, it was it was so great to be able to connect with Melina who has some um, close ties to the story as well and be able to tell the story so hopefully more people know about it. Uh, Molina, uh, first of all, no mas bebes is no more babies, and this was about right. sterilizing women unbeknownst to them. Uh, your ties to that story and what it was that bringing this to the screen um, that made this the kind of story you wanted to be a part of? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'm a Chicana, and I'm a proud daughter of immigrants from Mexico who actually moved uh, my mom's side literally lived across the street from LA County General at the time. And uh, my dad's side also grew up on the east side. So I feel that um, had I been transposed into another time and, and I was living in the 70s and I was giving birth at that hospital, um, just based on who I am and how I walk in the world as a brown Chicana, um, I, I don't see um, any scenario where I, I likely wouldn't have been in also um, victimized by this particular case of medical racism. Um, I also think that it's such a it's such a fascinating story, you know, being someone who was born and raised in Los Angeles and has also extensively studied uh, Chicano history, Mexican-American Latinx history. This story isn't something that I really delved into until I was out of college. Um, and I see I feel like it's really at the intersection 
of so many different topics that we're finally contending with now in 2020, right? So racism as a whole, this is a case of medical racism. Also, if we're going to talk about um, feminism, womenism, women's rights, um, particularly as they pertain to reproductive justice, we, we, we can't have that conversation without looking at this case and really um, re-examining what, what choice means and how, how large that umbrella is and how that looks different sometimes for uh, Black, Indigenous, Latina, and other women of color, as opposed to white women. You know, let's you know the Madrigal Ten. That's the group of women. How they are known collectively mm -hmm. now. I suspect, and I, I was able to glean from what Catherine was saying, that you you know and and have obviously researched this with with some of them. What what are some of their? What's one? Let's say one thing that you learned that just shocked you about their situation. Um. Gosh, I uh, how to zero in on on one of, of sure. these, uh, you know egregious. Yeah moments. I think uh, something that really landed on me uh, is that we have to consider the ripple effects of this particular instance of trauma. So there's the moment that the trauma happens on the site, which is the, uh, the, the body of these women, um, where their medical choice was stripped away. But when I talk about the ripple effects, the lasting consequences, the generational trauma, um, that's something that I don't know how we as a society uh, quantify justice for them, right? Or some sort of like monetary uh, retribution. Uh, because, you know, if you if anyone has ever seen this documentary, uh, there's this really poignant moment where one of the mother's uh, adult sons, I mean, this guy was probably in his 30s or 40s, he grew up never having known what his mother went through. And, uh, just the, the the rage and the deep pain that he was expressing and the moment of both of them just crying in each other's arms is a testament to this generational legacy of trauma that I think um, we, we I, I invite more into this conversation around moments of, of, of racism and systemic racism and what that does beyond that the moment and how that trickles down into um, our families and our communities. Yeah, you know, Catherine, uh, hearing Melina talk about the systemic uh, racism, but really the medical racism and the ripple effect, I can't help but think about the Tuskegee syphilis studies as well, um, which uh, there, you know, there was a comeuppance for what happened in Tuskegee and Alabama all those years ago. Did you go to school on that at all? And, and is tying this together, especially now at a time where COVID has really taken the blanket off of the fact that there is medical racism in this country? And certainly it's not always malicious, sometimes it is a, a, a societal as well, where you see that the, the, the effects of a, a pandemic like COVID can have on a community that is in poorer health and has fewer resources. Uh, what's the teaching moment for you as a director here? Yeah, so so actually Melina's boyfriend works at um, the, the hospital, and so I was able to have a conversation with, um, with him about how um, he's working to make sure that these types of um, situations don't continue to happen. And Melina and I had a conversation about whether um, whether her character was going to be only speak Spanish or be bilingual. And we decided that she was going to be bilingual so that 
this can be seen as just not just a language barrier, but this is something that's been happening to women across the U.S. It, it happened with Black women in um, in the South with Planned Parenthood and um, abortions being pushed harder for them, or, or with um, birth control being pushed harder for them, and um, it's happening with Indigenous women in Canada. And so this isn't this isn't a one-time event. This is happening to so many communities around the world. Uh, the film is called For Rosa, and uh, can you tell me where people can watch it and, and how people can, what the resources are around it, if people want to learn more about the Madrigal 10? Yeah, so um, we don't have a release date quite yet, but um, you can view the trailer on our website, forrosafilm.com, um, or follow our Instagram page, For Rosa film and um, we'll be releasing updates on on screenings and um, we're hoping to do a virtual screening this this summer. That's but, great. You know, Again, if I could that, just that, say one more yeah. thing, that's where the TYT community and that's where you all can can come in and support and help uplift the story. Um, because yes, it's about medical racism, but this is absolutely connected to this moment. Um, we're seeing in terms of a reckoning of people calling for an end to white supremacy and really taking a hard look at how that permeates into every part of our society. Absolutely medical racism. Um, but if you look at Hollywood, you don't see stories like this. You don't see uh, a lot of brown actors that look like me or the rest of the, our cast. So right now is, a, is absolutely a moment to pressure the gatekeepers and the powers that be. Um, because we do need distribution. And um, I think we're all ready to just kind of uh, start making those, those asks, asks um, for justice in a very clear way because we're all ready for it. Yeah, it's a really great point about the timing. And I, I brought COVID in, but it's also obviously at a time when there is uh, a racial reckoning going on and a, an examination of how we operate. So this is actually the perfect bridging of those two, because it's about medicine, which we're dealing with on COVID, and it's about race, which we're dealing with in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. So I think that it, it, you're right in, in that sense. So I think it's, it's great that you pointed that out. Um, when you do a film like this, which is really sort of, it's about women, it's about uh, your own heritage in terms of being a Chicana, as as you mm -hmm. told us. Um, what is it about that 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 makes it sort of more exciting as an actress? More, you know, that you put something different into it. I guess as someone who is not an actor. Um, well, I think that for me, the kinds of projects that I gravitate toward, um, and the kinds of projects that uh, take an interest in myself as an actor. Um, tend to be rooted in some sort of disruption of a status quo, tend to shed light um, on a moment or a, a historical moment or a particular uh, political issue that demands our attention. And so I take it um, also as, as, a, as a responsibility, really. I mean, if you look at just the past, um, kind of few things that have been part of the trajectory of my work, whether it's playing an undocumented an indigenous woman in Orange is the New Black, um, or more recently in Little America um, that's on Apple TV, where I play uh, an undocumented mother. Um, but I also think there's like, it's two sides of the, of the coin, right? So uh, on the one hand, I feel a responsibility. I'm happy to do it. I'm passionate about this. Separately, I'm an activist. Um, I'm a, a guest correspondent with Latino Rebels. But I also um, want to point out that there's a problem within Hollywood that tends to other and exotify um, the Latinx experience um, and, and their 
is a Latinx US-based experience that isn't always bilingual or accented or only Spanish. Um, so, you know, I have to be honest, I, I have a master's degree, but I don't get offered roles where I'm playing a lawyer or um, a, a, a community organizer even. Um, for some reason, uh, the colorism problem and, and internalized racism, even within the Latinx Hollywood um, paradigm is that of uh, continuing stereotypes. So I just, I hope to, with this visibility of any new project, continue that conversation. And the conversation does go on. I'm glad you said conversation. That's the name of our show, Melina. Uh, Catherine Boyd-Badstone, um, I, uh, I appreciate uh, that you did this and you brought it to us. Uh, it's uh, at Four Rosa Film is where you can find it on uh, on Instagram and Twitter. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Both of those, Catherine? Okay, good. And then uh, go look at it at fourrosafilm.com. Uh, we thank you both for being on the show. Catherine Boyd-Badstone, writer-director for Rosa. And of course, uh, Melina Bovadia, who uh, brings to life the Madrigal 10. You've been watching the conversation. Thanks.